So this evening, we're going to be focusing on some passages, or some verses, excuse me, taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We won't get to those until later on in the sermon this evening, but I do invite you to have your Bibles ready, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll start right at the very beginning when we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can find that on page 1142 in your pew Bibles. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. I know you have the ESV. They're very similar here, but especially as we think about this social false gospel here this evening. First, let's ask the Lord's blessing, shall we, as we spend time meditating on His Word and the truths of it. Let's pray. And we come now this evening, Lord, not with anything that we can contribute to our salvation, but Lord, we come as those who are beggars, as those who are needy, those who are broken, those who are desperate. And Lord, we cry out to Thee, asking for a filling, asking for a feeding. We who thirst, Lord, that we might again be, be reminded of, of Jesus Christ, that living water, the one who completes us, who, who satisfies our deepest longings, our, our greatest of need. And so, Lord, we ask now for the working of thy Holy Spirit to accomplish this. As we pray all this in Jesus' precious name, amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, a couple of quick questions for you this evening as we begin our sermon. Are you okay with the amount of homelessness that appears to be increasing in our cities? With the growing number of panhandlers? who perch themselves at the end of our interstate highway off-ramps with their cardboard signs asking for money, and then a lot of times at the bottom is, is also written on their God bless. Are you content with the rapidly falling rates of literacy among our school-aged children and teenagers? What about the large number of people who who from other nations have often fled, of course, the, the horrible daily violence of their own land. They flock to our nation, particularly our southern border, trying to find a safe place for themselves and for their children to, to find a new life, to maybe grow old in this land. Are you bothered by the, the growing divide between the haves and the have-nots in our nation and our world? where the uber-wealthy, it seems increasingly so, are living in gated communities. They often don't have to come face-to-face -face with the crime, the problems plaguing too many of our nation's communities. Or what about gun violence in our, in our nation's cities, our big cities, or black-on-black -black crime in South Chicago? Does that concern you? I could list even more social ills, the problem with drugs, addictions, the problem with abuse and neglect, the, the scourge of abortion and pornography in our land, in our world, the prevalence of human trafficking, the detrimental gender confusion that government entities are foisting upon our nation's children, the culture war against marriage, families, and sexuality, 
We watch the news. We, we know what the problems are. Now, granted, certain news networks, they spotlight certain societal and political ills, while other news networks will oftentimes, on the opposite side of the political spectrum, might spotlight other ones, saying these are the ones we need to tackle in our politics. And then we think, well, which party will even declare something as, a, as an ill? For example, the Republican Party calls out abortion as a great moral wrong, while the Democrat Party calls out abortion as a great moral right. One party says abortion is wrong because it's against the unborn, their right to life. The other party says abortion is upholding the importance of, of individual choice. And so in the midst of all this, what are Christians to do? What are you to do? Following our nation's civil war, our nation's cities, particularly those cities of the north, like New York City, Boston, and Philadelphia, to name a few, they continue to grow and grow. Many immigrants from many nations, places like Ireland and Italy and, and Poland, were making the journey across the Atlantic to find a new life for themselves, for their families here in the United States. When they landed, of course, many of them didn't have much money to their name. They didn't have money to buy land, many of them. And so they congregated in large cities where the rent was cheap. The jobs were easiest to get to and to come by. Industrialism was expanding at this time as our nation's large companies grew ever larger, our nation's wealthy business owners and bankers grew ever more wealthy. All the while, more and more people were struggling in these cities. Children oftentimes were left unattended for, for a day, even more, days at a time. Truancy, as a result, was rampant. Many children themselves, in fact, had to work, sometimes in harsh working conditions for long hours at a time when other children were going to school. Alcohol use was on the rise, which meant domestic violence. Many people weren't able to make enough money to feed their families. They were left to go begging in the streets. They had to wait in line for food, for, for bread and soup. How could a supposedly Christian nation like the United States allow such inhumanities to continue? It was increasingly said by, by authors, by newspaper editorialists, by pastors from their pulpits. One Baptist minister especially became well-known for calling out such social wrongs, calling on the churches, calling on the government to do something to right these wrongs. His name was Reverend Walter Rauschenbusch. And in the 1880s, he served as a pastor of an immigrant church in the Hell's Kitchen area of New York City. But in 1907, he ended up publishing a book entitled Christianity and the Social Crisis. That book and Walter Rauschenbusch are said to be the founding father and founding document of the social gospel movement in the United States, a movement which spread to other Western Christian nations like Great Britain. Rauschenbusch, the father of the social gospel movement, he, he became well known for a number of his different quotes, quotes such as these, the kingdom of God is not a matter of getting individuals to heaven, but of transforming the life on earth into the harmony of heaven. That quote says a lot. The work of the church, according to Rauschenbusch and those who came after him, is primarily to make earth the way it is in heaven. 
that the money and energies of the church ought to be focused on fighting the social and moral ills of our day and age. So going to war against poverty and unemployment, illiteracy and homelessness, discrimination and and legal injustices, for instance. Which then brings us to another one of Walter Rauschenbusch's quotes. Whoever uncouples the religious and the social life has not understood Jesus. Whoever sets any bounds for the reconstructive power of the religious life over the social relations and institutions of men to that extent denies the faith of the master. There's a lot there. To condense it, and then based on some of his other writings that expounded on that even more, he's saying you can't separate religion and earthly social reform. And if you try to have the church focus on the state of man's soul and what happens to him after death, rather than unleashing the church to lead the way in righting wrongs here on earth and combating injustices in this world, then you fail to be a true Christian. You fail to be a true church. True Christians, true churches ought to make it their primary mission in this life to alleviate poverty in a place like Hell's Kitchen, where Rauschenbusch pastored, for instance. The problem of this world isn't so much personal sin as it's societal ills, according to the social gospel. And and so the only way a person would be truly free to make good and holy choices would first to be freed from the social and economic failures that drove them to sin in the first place. Your social gospel, you see, doesn't talk so much about individuals having a sin problem, nor God being angry with that sin problem. Rather, what God is most upset about are social ills like poverty and social injustices. And so the solution? The church needs to be out there working with with governments, perhaps, to, to control, to correct these social ills. That's what most pleases God. Then, according to the social gospel teaching, when the church is out there correcting these social wrongs, transforming culture, then Jesus Christ is being revealed. The church needs to be out there providing low-income housing for those with housing insecurities rather than telling people they're sinners in need of a Savior who died on the cross to save them from their sins. What good does it do someone to, to say your soul can be saved if you're letting them be languish in suffering through lack of food and lack of, of housing? Jesus wants you to care for the least of these the social gospel teaches. That is what God most expects of his church. And so as a consequence of this, social salvation, is that term social salvation, is superior to individual salvation in the social gospels theologizing. Social reform is what is most important, not the saving of souls, 
That is why in churches where the social gospel is the gospel that is preached, you will hear practically no sermons about matters of personal holiness and the problem of sin that needs to be repented of, nor sermons about the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross to atone for sins. But what you will hear are sermons about the importance of Christians getting involved in maybe a local food pantry, or the church getting rid even of styrofoam cups and moving to reusable or recyclable mugs in order to, to, to love the earth, or the church taking in an immigrant family. For social salvation is superior to individual salvation in the social gospel. To which sometimes we hear that and we say, well, what's the problem with this? Aren't Christians supposed to be concerned about the poor? About those with housing insecurities? What about taking care of creation, of nature? Aren't we supposed to do that? Aren't we supposed to be busy in the work of, of taking in immigrants who are looking for a new home or helping single mothers find childcare for their little ones? And of course, a list of, of a multitude of other social causes which might be added on to that which Christians can agree upon is not good in this world of ours, something we ought to do something about to help fix it. What's the problem here then? Of course, this is what makes false gospels sound so enticing. Why well-meaning believers can be lured down the wrong pathway in unsuspecting ways. The problem with the social gospel can be whittled down to this. It confuses the doctrine of sanctification with the doctrine of justification. Or to put it another way, salvation in a social gospel church is found by the people of that church doing good works by advancing a certain social justice agenda. Where church isn't where you go to hear about the atoning blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his victory over the grave through his resurrection. Rather, church is where you go to get organized, to work with maybe a government, to change laws, community structures, to, to address social ills. That's where you find your salvation, essentially. God doesn't bother him such, himself so much with this issue of sin, so much as he bothers himself with a lack of neighbors loving neighbors. So the solution, they say, is you need to go out there and love your neighbor. That's how you're made right with God. That's how you please God, by loving your neighbor, by helping them overcome the problems that they face in life. But see, this isn't the gospel, is it? That's a consequence, a result of being transformed by the gospel, but it is not itself the gospel. It's sanctification. Therefore, how then shall I live since I've been saved from my sins? But it's not justification. What saves me? It's essential for the church to get the gospel correct. 
Because otherwise it leads down a path of, of works righteousness. So what then is the gospel? The true gospel. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about what the true gospel is actually, and now we turn our attention here. Verse 1 and verse 2, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. We stop there. So before Paul unpacks the gospel, he makes some important points in the life of Christ's church. First, it's what he himself as an apostle preached. Now that's important. He said, I preached the gospel because the testimony, the witness of the apostles are that upon which the church's witness is built upon. The reason the church exists in large part is due to the apostles. After all, Jesus raised up the disciples who then became the apostles. And then as well, the apostle Paul joining them as an apostle chosen by the resurrected Jesus Christ himself so that why? They might be eyewitnesses to proclaim to the world the message of who Jesus was, what he said, and what he did. So the fact that Paul preached the gospel means the church needs to keep on with that. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 1 writing how the church in Corinth received what he preached to them, and then what did they do with it? It says, it's that, it's that gospel upon which you have taken your stand. The gospel, you see, is the thing. It is this non-negotiable thing upon which Christ's church needs to rally upon and around. So the gospel is central. Got it, Paul. Then in verse 2, he reminds the church why the gospel is important. By this gospel you are saved, he writes. So it seems that this being saved, this is a big deal to the Apostle Paul. The individual salvation of a person's soul is really, really important. The social gospel disagrees with Paul here. But Paul then goes on in verse 2 saying salvation comes to those who hold firmly to the word he preached to them. So individual belief is really important to the Holy Spirit who moved Paul to write these words. You are saved not by loving your neighbor, but you are saved by firmly holding to the preached gospel by faith. And this isn't just a bunch of willy-nilly teachings that the Apostle Paul just kind of threw out there. The gospel is rooted in historical happenings. If it wasn't rooted in truth of what actually happened, then what is the consequence of this? According to verse 2, Paul says, otherwise you have believed in vain. If the message of the gospel isn't true, if it's not rooted in reality, if you don't believe in that true gospel, you are really wasting your time in the sight of God. It's in vain. Okay, then Paul, so then what is this gospel? He explains what it is beginning now in verse 3. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he also appeared to me as to one abnormally born. So that's the gospel, brothers and sisters. Jesus lived. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Exactly the way the scripture said he would need to, to be this atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was actually dead. He was buried in a tomb. But on the third day, Jesus Christ arose from the dead again, according to the scriptures. And to prove that he bodily rose again from the dead, Jesus appeared to all the apostles. And then he appeared to over 500 more people, most of whom were living at the time Paul wrote this letter. You could go and ask them and say, did you see Jesus? I did see Jesus. I even touched him, perhaps. So I spoke to him face to face. I saw Jesus. And then after appearing to a few others, Jesus appeared to Paul himself. And there you have it, North Street Christian Reformed Church. That is what is so vitally important. That is what the church rises and falls over, whether it holds to that testimony and preaches that testimony. That's where you take your stand as non-negotiable because the implications of it is salvation. It's life or not. Paul goes on here in 1 Corinthians 15 to tell the church about the positive implications of this gospel truth. That because of Jesus, because of his resurrection from the dead, you and I, though one day we will die, yet shall we live. That's the victory that belongs to us by belonging by faith to Jesus Christ. Verse 56 and verse 57 the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's Jesus' work that gives us the victory. It's not my work. It's not your work. It's not the work of Walter Rauschenbusch. It's not how well you've loved your neighbor. That is all law. It's not gospel. That's all you and I doing things. Maybe to ushering God's kingdom and the victory of God's people. But we don't usher in God's kingdom. We, we do not secure the victory of God's people in this world through reforming social ills and creating better laws and government social programs. Jesus is the one who secures the victory. Jesus is the one who will eventually usher in the change that this world needs. And he will do that when he comes again in power and glory. But it's always been about Jesus. Just as Paul here points out, he explains the gospel. What, this is what he's always been preaching, what he's been teaching to the churches and churches like in Corinth. 
Because if the church is spending the bulk of its efforts trying to fix social problems and ills of this nation and this world, the way that the social gospel proclaims the church ought to be doing, then not only are we taking our eyes off of Jesus' finished work on the cross and the empty tomb, and in practice, we're looking at ourselves instead but the church would actually be investing herself in creating laws and structures that are not going to last anyway. Listen to what Paul writes here in chapter 15, verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You see, the church's calling is not first and foremost to labor for perishable things. Our first calling is not to help make sure poverty is eradicated from our community. Our first calling is not to make sure that the government has adequate laws in place to ensure that CO2 levels drop even more. The church's first calling is not to make sure that every people group who has ever been disadvantaged by past government policies ought to have those grievances addressed and made right. Because the laws of the United States, the United States itself, is not going to endure. The, the nations of the world are not going to endure. The wrongs perpetrated in this present life are not going to carry over in the life to come for those who are in heaven. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable because the perishable structures and laws are going to die off just like our perishable bodies will one day die off. But what lives on? The imperishable, the soul, the spirit. And so it's to the soul, it's to the spirit that the church primarily ministers. Yes, the body is important. The Holy Spirit established the office of deacon to help alleviate bodily needs of God's people. But the diaconate was established in order to what? Free up the elders of the church to attend to matters of preaching and teaching and prayer. The book of Acts tells us the body is important. Perishable matters are important, but the body will be made new again one day at the day of resurrection. And matters that concern us so much now in this world of, of poverty and injustice and food deprivation and discrimination and addictions and murder and a host of other wrongs and evils. Jesus himself is one day going to be the one who ultimately he writes those wrongs. He gets rid of those evils forever and ever. And the old earth will be purged by the fires of judgment and cleansing, and the new earth will take its place when Jesus comes again. But who will benefit from Jesus' return? Not everyone. Only those who by faith are found in the bosom of Christ and his gospel, which is why the apostle Paul said, this is what is non-negotiable. This is what I preach to you. This is how you are saved. 
Because if someone does not belong to Jesus Christ by faith, then that person does not get to share in that glorious future. No matter how much better that they've made things to be among the perishable laws and structures of this present life, the need for saving faith is primary because the problem of man's sin is so bad and putting one's faith in Jesus Christ and him alone is what's necessary. That is what saves. And that's something that neither the world can provide and it's not anything that the world teaches. It's what the church teaches. It's what the sacraments point to. It's what Jesus Christ alone provides. Yes, we must do good deeds. James writes about that in his letter, that faith without works is dead. But good works are only the fruit of faith. They don't take the place of faith. Nor can they take the place of faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be supplanted by the social gospel when it comes to matters of salvation, of eternal life or eternal death. Which is why the apostle Paul preached the gospel wherever he went. It was the focal point of his ministry. He told the church in Corinth this. And why then it ought to be the focal point of the ministry here at North Street and at Beaver Dam and the churches of Classis Zealand and of the Christian Reformed Church and all of Christ's church. Not that other ministries aren't important. Not that they ought to be neglected. But first and foremost comes the gospel. The true gospel. Not a false gospel. Not a social gospel, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, thanks be to God for that gospel. Amen. Let's pray. And dear Heavenly Father, for that good news that we have sung about already this evening, of the blood of Jesus Christ, the power of the cross, that we come nothing with nothing in our hands, as if we had anything to offer in regards to our salvation. But we come as, as poor and needy sinners, as beggars before thy throne of grace. And we again plead for Jesus Christ. And we again thank thee for the blood of Jesus and for the power of the cross and the power of Easter with its empty tomb, the power of our resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who gives us hope that even in the face of death, we have comfort, knowing that death is not the final word for God's people, but that life is and resurrection is and a new creation is when Jesus Christ comes again. And so help us, Lord. Give us that joy, that peace, that confidence as we proclaim the gospel, we share the gospel, and then we live out the implications also of that then in our lives so that others would see Jesus in us and so we could tell them of the hope that is within us, that Jesus has forgiven my sins and he can forgive your sins too and give you new life. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.